Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Dr. Saeed, also known on Twitter as Tatsir Doctor, for being on the episode today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Saeed is very active on Twitter, and someone from whom I've benefited greatly are uh, reading a lot of his tweets, and I think I've read some of his works also. Uh, I'm going to ask the, prof- the doctor to introduce himself kindly. Uh, assalamu alaikum and uh, hi to everyone, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so my own background, I've, I'm born and brought up in Scotland. I did um, my first degree in philosophy before going to Egypt to study at Al-Azhar University, where I did another degree, this time in uh, Islamic theology, and I chose to specialize in Quranic studies and tafsir. Um, and after completing that uh, course of study in 2013, I came back to the UK and did a PhD in Islamic studies, and I, I did a thesis on the topic of uh, tafsir principles or usul al-tafsir. Specifically, I looked at um, how parts of the Quran are used to explain other parts of the Quran. So that's um, quite famously known as tafsir al-Quran bil-Quran, or uh, exegesis of the Quran through the Quran. So uh, through that uh, piece of research, I looked at lots of issues which underpin uh, how the Qur'an is interpreted and I looked at um, how we understand the Qur'an as a text, as a phenomenon. Um, so that is uh, you know, very strongly my interest, um, not just uh, on, a, on an academic level in the sense of trying to understand what the Qur'an is, its history, the, the nature of the text, but also of course the impact and the implication of this text. Uh, for Muslims, this is revelation, it is guidance. Uh, so naturally, my concerns also are in how uh, this guidance is to be understood and how it is to be uh, followed. So I find myself, you know, sometimes feeling like I'm, I'm living in, in two worlds, but they are in reality the same world. And more and more, the kind of boundaries between um, what is considered academic life and what is otherwise uh, everyday life are, are, are being uh, are being uh, blurred or eroded and at the same time uh, different worlds of academic study different worlds of uh, of approaches to the Quran or if you like different purposes and methods that are used to study the Quran are coming closer together uh, so we have more and more conversation between uh, the type of approaches that we might study in a place like Al-Azhar University and those which we might study um, in a university like uh, where I did my PhD, which is SOAS, University of London. Um, so my thesis reads as some kind of blend of, of different concerns as well. And your thesis, if you wanted to tell us a bit more about it. Well, it's, um, it's, um, it's called Intra-Quranic Hermeneutics. So that's, uh, is, is, if you want to search for it, you'll have to figure out how to spell that. <laughs> uh, but it is actually available open access on the SOAS uh, website as a PDF, so, so anyone can, can access it and read it if they, if they like. Um, and through that, I looked at um, something which is often taken for granted, which is that one of the methods um, of interpreting the Qur'an is to look at the Qur'an itself, 
Um, and this is sometimes appreciated as one of the key principles of exegesis, of tafsir. Um, it is sometimes described as the best method of tafsir. This famously is what uh, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah said about it uh, and has been repeated many, many times um, since then. Uh, indeed, it's considered to be a point of consensus oftentimes that the best method to interpret the Qur'an is to look at the Qur'an itself uh, to the extent that um, sometimes they are saying that if you find the answer in the Qur'an, there would be no need to look anywhere else. Uh, only when you don't find the answer, there is an expectation you would need to go to the next uh, source to find the answer, which is of course the sunnah and beyond that, the statements of the companions and, and so on. Um, be that as it may, um, this is something which is considered so important but had remained fairly unexplored with regards to the details. So more generally, um, something I, I argued in my thesis is that the field of usul al-tafsir, the principles of exegesis, has remained uh, very underdeveloped. And I'm not the first person to say that. This is actually many Muslim scholars nowadays are saying that uh, we need a lot of work on elaborating and clarifying what are the principles of exegesis or what are the processes and methods involved in interpreting the Qur'an. It's not that uh, Muslim scholars didn't talk about this. In fact, they did uh, to a large extent. Uh, it's just that they did so in some different contexts and places, and we find those details scattered in different types of books. So if we want to find out how to interpret the Qur'an, we could look at, you know, first of all, books that are called Usul al-Tafsir, right? So they have in their title, you know, Principles of Exegesis. In actual fact, in our history, we have very few books that were directly about this topic or, or called themselves by that name. Um, even the famous work by Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, it was not called that originally, but that's a modern uh, title that was attached to the work. We have Shah Waliullah Dehlawi has got Al-Fawzul Kabir Fi Usul Al-Tafsir and a few other things of this nature until the modern period when people started to write a lot of books with that in the title. So we would not find much uh, directly like that. Secondly, we could look at books of Tafsir themselves and we could look at the introductions written by the Mufassirin. You know, some of them wrote extensive introductions uh, like uh, Imam Al-Tabari, for example, wrote plenty in his introduction. But... Even, even then, you can see that what he wrote was not very much elaboration on how to do tafsir. It was just about some issues that were pertinent to, um, you know, to understanding the Quran and understanding tafsir, but not an elaboration on this is my method. These are the, the, the principles I'm following. These are the processes I'm following. And, and this is what people should follow. For example, you know, someone like him would have the authority to, uh, to say that if he wanted. So. We can look to introductions of, of tafsir also, and we can find a lot of material, but we wouldn't find it as elaborated as we might imagine it to be. Thirdly, we can go to books of Ulum al-Qur'an. Um, so we have um, individual books, but then you have the sort of encyclopedic works, starting with Al-Burhan fi Ulum al-Qur'an by uh, Imam Zarkashi, and then uh, a, a longer uh, book. Uh, by Imam Suyuti called Al-Itqan Fi Ulum Al-Qur'an, very important books which elaborate on many issues to do with the Qur'an and aspects of its study and including things to do with tafsir. Um, 
in fact, probably just about everything to do with tafsir or a very large proportion of, of things that you need to do tafsir are in these books. But what they are lacking is the type of organization which would make clear the relevance of all they're saying to tafsir. Um, so that's that's rich pickings. But at the same time, uh, if you just ask the question, how do I how do I go about becoming a mufassir? Right. Suppose. Let's imagine somebody wanted to be a mufassir. I don't know if anybody anybody does. But suppose somebody said, I want to become a mufassir. You know, what would they go and study? What would they read? In what order? This is not very clear and not very elaborated at the current time. Um, so this is what I mean by saying there's underdevelopment in the field of sulat tafsir. And then add to this the fact that there are some new approaches, new issues, new questions, or not necessarily new, but just things that are uh, increasingly given attention in the modern time, um, so, you know, such as how to understand the relation between stories in the Quran and the similar stories that have been elaborated in previous scriptures or in extra scriptural materials uh, that precede the Quran. How do you understand these things? That's a great concern right now of, of Western Quranic studies. Um, and it's something which we have resources in the Islamic tradition to deal with, but the elaboration and the clarification uh, remains to be done. Uh, tying that into our basic theological principles, tying that into our understanding of what the Quran is and the nature of its guidance, that has to be done, of course, by Muslim scholars uh, first and foremost. So in my thesis, I talked about this kind of gap, uh, the usul gap, I sometimes call it, and then I tried to address that gap with regards to one specific uh, principle, which is tafsir of the Qur'an through the Qur'an. So in order to do that, um, I did a few things. I, I did a case study of one surah of the Qur'an, surah Al-An'am, and I looked at various tafsirs and how they use the Qur'an as a resource for its own interpretation. So that was just so that I can I can be clear that I, I'm looking at what the mufassirin are doing, the exegetes are doing, and not ignoring it. Um, but definitely building my conclusions on on a solid basis. But then I went off in a more uh, uh, constructive approach or almost prescriptive approach, not quite, um, where I talked first of all about uh, the principles and theories underpinning tafsir of the Qur'an through the Qur'an. And then in, that was chapter three. And then in chapter four, I talked about methods uh, involved in tafsir of the Qur'an through the Qur'an. So um, this was a way of organizing it that, you know, I haven't seen, you know, something similar in, in existing works in Arabic or, or in English, but um, it was a way of trying to point the way towards how tafsir can continue to be built and constructed in the current time, because that is my belief that um, there is an ongoing need, um, a need that will last, you know, as long as uh, we are around on earth. Uh, you know, until we destroy the earth, basically, that we have to understand the Qur'an. Uh, if we believe that the Qur'an has relevance and contains guidance, then we need to understand it. That understanding is not just a historical curiosity, as it would be uh, for some scholars or some academics. Uh, for, for Muslim scholars, it has to be, well, because the Qur'an is there to provide guidance, then our task is to know how to recognize, understand, uh, extract and clarify that guidance. So tafsir is something that is uh, not a purely historical 
need, but an ongoing, continuous need. Uh, and, and when I say that, I, I really feel like it's a very obvious point. And yet I feel that it's not, uh, it's not something that seems to be, um, uh, it's not something that you, you, would, you would feel to be believed by, uh, by Muslims when you look at the way they treat tafsir. Um, I think that we treat tafsir as a historical uh, phenomenon that when we talk about the mufassirin, the exegetes, we talk about them as, as a past phenomenon. And we don't really have institutes now, as far as I'm aware, that are explicitly about uh, creating mufassirin. That's why I made the joke earlier about suppose someone wanted to be a mufassir. Plenty of people um, are, are, are graduating to become fuqaha or, or jurists and muftis and, uh, and, and to some extent muhaddiths. And plenty of people are working um, to become I don't know what a person, to, to become mutakallims, I don't know, but to, to work in the field of Aqidah and to, to tell people what the Aqidah should be, there's plenty of people doing that. There aren't many people who are actually focusing on the issue of tafsir. Um, yeah, there are more so in the Muslim world. Um, there are specialist departments about tafsir. Uh, but again, being a, a specialist about tafsir is not the same as being a person who does tafsir. Um, and, and there's such a difference between the two things. Um, to go back to my, uh, you know, I mentioned that I studied Al Azhar, and I know that you, uh, Ashar, you were asking me to to say something about that experience. Um, when I was studying at Al Azhar, you know, I, I made a, a you know a, a point of joining the department which was specifically about tafsir because that's that's what I wanted to study. I I knew that my my interest in fiqh was much less than many of my colleagues and and I knew that people are taking care of the fiqh you know people are taking care of of those kind of practical legal matters there's enough people that you can go to to ask about those things but we have a great need to to work in the field of tafsir and my personal interest and inclination or my heart was in it you could say so having chosen to go there um you know we we were given uh, subjects and training which were more relevant to that kind of goal, uh, relevant to that specialization. But at the same time, there was never any suggestion um, that by so doing, we are training to become Mufassirin, or that even if we stayed on, because I only did the bachelor degree there in Egypt, uh, but even if I'd stayed on and done the master's there and done the PhD there rather than in London, there was no suggestion that doing that is is what also makes you a mufassir, um, because uh, because the idea of being a mufassir has has sort of been framed um, as as almost an impossible goal. You know, there are very few people in the world today who people would point at and say they are they are a mufassir. Normally, we we wait till they die and then we say, oh, that was a mufassir. You know, may Allah have mercy on him. Or her sometimes, but mostly him. They would say, "Oh, may Allah have mercy on on that person. They were a great mufassir." So you have to have written, you know, you have to have spent twenty five years, and you know, someone like Ibn Ashur, uh, who died, you know, forty six years ago, nineteen seventy three, is is almost like the last, you know, major uh, mufassir that this world has seen. So the way I see it, we need mufassirin. We will always need mufassirin, and we need to uh, work to make 
the route that that they would take to to develop those skills and to train in the field. We need to make that route and that syllabus clearer, um, especially for people who are going to go all the way, but also for the ordinary person to appreciate how the Quran is, is understood is very important because I think there's a lot of confusion about that. Even amongst uh, graduates of Islamic studies um, or, or of, from Islamic seminaries, even amongst people who are fairly educated about tafsir, they have some misconceptions uh, which have come about in, in, in the 20th century pretty much um, about the nature of tafsir, about the way tafsir is done. Uh, and I and I could give you some some uh, examples or some clarification of that, but I don't want to go on too long in this kind of uh, spiel that I've got myself into. Well, I, I was wondering. I mean, uh, if you were going to create a syllabus or a curriculum for someone who wanted to specialize in tafsir and you know become a mufassir, what would you include? I mean, this is probably a pretty lengthy type of thing, but some of the basic things that you would include in this type of yeah. specialization. Well, first of all. Uh, we have to appreciate what kind of science tafsir is. Um, this is this, this allows me to say something about the misconceptions. Uh, one of the things that is very common to hear people talk about um, in the modern age is that tafsir is of two types. Tafsir bil ma'thur and tafsir bil ra'i. So the first one, tafsir through narrations, and the second one, tafsir by opinion. Uh, the word ra'i, opinion, is very loaded and... Uh, and, you know, they actually talk about uh, praiseworthy opinion and blameworthy opinion as two categories here. But Ra'i by itself, you know, is, is already sort of, it's kind of loaded and, and weighted towards the negative in our tradition. Like to speak from your opinion doesn't sound like a good thing, even if you say praiseworthy opinion. Uh, by praiseworthy opinion, they mean um, when a person uh, speaks in accordance with the doctrine of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, or this is an orthodox uh, opinion. So they might put someone like Imam Razi in there. And then blameworthy opinion is when they speak in a way that is heterodox or not according to Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. So there they would put uh, Zamakhshari. And I wanted to say Imam Zamakhshari. When I say Imam, it's not because I, I belong to his, his school, which is a Mu'tazila uh, school, but because in Tafsir he is not just an imam, he is pretty much the imam. And this is the this is the funny thing, like our tradition has been very uh, okay with that. Um, tafsir, first and foremost, is about the language of the Qur'an. Uh, it is about the fact that God Almighty has communicated with some of his creation. He's communicated with his messengers. Is communicated with the final messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and that communication has come in the form of words, and those words uh, were understood by uh, the one who received them. They were understood by the messenger. They were understood for the most part by those around him as he would convey the Quran to his companions. Uh, both the believers and to the unbelievers, they would hear the Quran and they would understand it. They wouldn't hear the Quran and they say, what does that mean? Oh, like, I need someone to explain it. I need some tafsir. For the most part, they would hear the Quran and they would understand it. Then, of course, we do have examples where uh, there was a failure to understand something correctly or 
some companions expressed that they were puzzled by a certain word or um, a famous example where one of the companions heard about the the, the ayah which says, you know, and, and eat and drink until you see the white thread and the black thread becoming distinct, right? So this is supposed to be talking about the, um, the, the light of dawn, you know, so where you see dawn becoming distinct and, uh, you know, emerging from, from the darkness of night, then you have to begin the fast in Ramadan. Well, one of the companions heard this expression, and he um, he thought that it was about threads, actual threads. And when he related this to the Prophet ﷺ, that I, I keep a white thread and a black thread under my pillow. And uh, and then I, I basically, I bring them out and I check whether I can see the difference between the white and the black. Uh, so he took that literally. And then the Prophet ﷺ, you know, spoke to him in a, in a sort of, according to some of the narrations, a quite jesting way, even... Um, made some gentle gentle fun of this uh, companion of his and said, well, you must have a really massive pillow <laughs> uh, if you can keep under there the threads of, of, of night and day because this is what it means. So it's possible that occasionally, you know, the companions understood in different ways or they might have uh, made uh, some mistakes and the Prophet, peace be upon him, was there to guide them to understand it. But the point is that the starting point has was and as I'm arguing, is that the Qur'an is the communication in its own right and that we take it in its own right. And then whenever we find uh, a challenge in understanding something, and that challenge comes from ourselves, when we, when we find that there's a weakness in our own, uh, our own understanding, maybe because of our own distance from that uh, time and context of revelation, then we need tafsir to fill the gap. That's what tafsir is. Tafsir is the answer to questions, uh, questions that arise in, in my own mind or questions that uh, someone asks and therefore needs to be answered. Um, and that's why I, um, I make this point about tafsir bil ma'thur, tafsir bil ra'i. Um, if we said that we, we have to depend upon the understanding of the Sahaba, now this is, this is right and this is good. Um, it, but it's it's kind of a slogan, you know. If you say we have to understand uh, Islam according to the Quran and the Sunnah, but we understand the Quran and Sunnah according to the understanding of the companions. The the difficulty with this um, with this statement is that we don't have direct access to the understanding of the companions. What what do we have access to? We have access to narrations from the companions. Uh, when we look at the narrations of the companions, we have to ask ourselves a fundamental question. Did they, do these narrations reflect everything that the companions thought, everything that they believed, everything that they understood? Now, for an obvious reason, those narrations do not reflect everything that they thought and uh, understood and believed. Because, uh, you know, if you think about it, most things that you or I think or understand we don't say them out loud we don't have to express them the only time you have to say something out loud is um is if there's a need for that to be expressed if there's a need to clarify something because uh, someone has misunderstood or someone has asked me a question right i don't have to say uh, grass is green right i don't have to talk about grass being green because everybody around me knows that 
Only if somebody says, what color is grass? This would have to be a very small child, maybe, or someone who had been blind and is just seeing for the first time or something like this. I would say, oh, grass, grass is green. Uh, only if somebody came and said, no, I, I believe that grass is actually purple. I would say, no, my friend, grass is green. Now I have to actually say the obvious thing. But while it was obvious and while it was uncontroversial, there was no need to, to say it out loud. Uh, the obvious things are the things that are not stated. And the, the fahm or the understanding of the Sahaba exist in their head. And the things that are said out loud and therefore end up in a narration, end up in books, is because there was some question over it or some controversy over it. So when we understand that fundamental issue, we realize that uh, tafsir of the Quran, uh, most things remained unstated. After all, the Prophet wasallam. Um, apparently has not explained very much of the Quran in terms of um, giving a verbal explanation of it. Primarily, he was explaining it through his his action and his implementation. But if we look at the hadiths that we have from the Prophet ﷺ that are explicitly clarification of, of verses of the Quran, we'd find their number to be very few. There is a, a book that I have uh, on the shelf here, which is Call it Tafsir al-Nabawi, the prophetic uh, Tafsir. And um, the researcher has gathered everything that he could find that's explicit Tafsir from the Prophet. And he didn't just keep to um, Sahih and Hassan Hadith, he included Da'if as well. He included weak narrations as well, in order just to focus on what's explicit. The number of Hadiths that he found were 318. So 318 Hadiths that are Explicit. Once you uh, remove uh, weak narrations, it would be it would be much less. Um, so, not that much is narrated directly from the Prophet ﷺ. The companions said a lot, uh, but most of what they said was just clarifying certain words, or you know, occasionally there was an issue of of disagreement or an issue of controversy that they had to weigh in on, and then we find sometimes alternative explanations from different Sahaba even sometimes debates amongst the Sahaba. Some of them said one thing and then someone like Aisha radiallahu anha would weigh in and say, no, you have misunderstood. Um, and she would answer based on her proximity to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So our, our topic here was how would we go about studying? What I'm trying to say is uh, narrations from the Sahaba are, or, or from the early generations in general. So narrations from the Prophet sallallahu himself and from his companions and from the Tabi'een are an important resource in tafsir. But first and foremost, the study of tafsir is through the language of the Quran, and that is supplemented by an understanding of the context of each ayah. In fact, there are two types of context. So the structural context and the revelatory context. So understanding each ayah in its place within the surah, that is necessary. So to understand what's before it, what comes after it, what is the overall theme and purpose of the surah? Um, and that is something that was appreciated early on, but is is become more and more popular as a as a you know as a concern in modern exegesis. But with that is the revelatory context. So many times a specific ayah, we have some narrations, um, or even if we don't have narrations, we 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 can recognize that this ayah must have come within some context of revelation. There must be some story behind this. 
what was it seeking to address? What you know, who who were the addressees? What was the issue that this ayah is is uh, touching on? And with reference to that, we might have a, a more you know we might have a subtler understanding or even quite different understanding of the ayah compared to how it appears at first glance based on language alone. So language alone is not sufficient to understand the Quran. But what I'm saying is is the first port of call is what is understood from the language. Then you understand it in context or contexts in plural. And the narrations from the Sahaba, etc. are telling us the earliest explanations. And then there are explanations which which proceed uh, from that. Then we have our whole tradition of, of tafsir, which supplements that, adds to that. And, and why does it add? Because the later tafsir may add new questions that were not asked in the early stages. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is perfectly fine and perfectly natural. Every age will have its own questions. New questions will arise. Um, some might say, oh, we shouldn't ask too many questions. Well, sometimes you don't have a choice. You know, people come to you with the questions. People come to you with the problems. And then you either, um, you know, stand up and answer the question or you just, uh, you know, bury your head in the sand and say, well, I'm not going to answer that question. But you may leave people with then misconceptions uh, or, or challenges to the Quran or challenges to Islam that we have decided to ignore. So if you if you feel that we have to answer the questions that people bring to us, that will mean more tafsir is needed because more uh, questions are arising, therefore more answers are needed. Even for the original questions, uh, where there were answers provided in the early stage, sometimes we realize later on, well, that answer is actually not sufficient. That answer is 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 faulty in some way. You know, it, it sounded good at the time, and it was repeated many times over many centuries, because there was no need to examine it any closer. Uh, take, for example, in, in in the scientific field, you know, questions about. Um, um, hopefully this is not controversial it's, it, it's become controversial again is the earth round or is the earth flat uh, as far as I'm concerned it's not controversial the earth is round but the point is um, verses of the Quran could be read as saying that the earth is flat and um, it, it's possible that, that some of Asirin would answer the question on that basis um, even if we suppose let's, and I'm just saying this as a, as a hypothesis Suppose that all the Mufassirin actually agreed with that. So then it would be called ijma and consensus, right? It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the answer that they gave, was it based on, you know, a, a firm principle that is therefore incontrovertible and, and binding till the end of time? Or was it based on supposition, based on what they observed, what they understood at that time? In which case we can certainly update it and change it according to what's understood later on. So the nature of consensus about tafsir depends on you know, the basis for that consensus. What, you know, what kind of consensus are we, are we talking about? Um, so yes, answers and therefore tafsir can change over time and it can increase over time as more and more things are asked and new answers may be given. Uh, by later scholars than, than were given in the in the earlier time. If we can cope with that, you know, within the first few hundred years, um, I think we should be able to cope with that in the future as well, that we can revisit opinions that are mentioned in books of tafsir and say, um, you know, some of these answers uh, may have sounded good at the time, but may not be 
uh, may not be correct. And our our job and our role is to is to be as correct as possible in what we are saying about the Quran, not to just stick to tradition for the sake of tradition, but rather to stick to the Quran because that's the revelation. Understood. And you know, in history, we see the rise of the usul of of fiqh of hadith. Uh, why didn't we see anything for tafsir? Like you had mentioned that sometimes you might find details of this stuff in introductions, but you don't find an actual work dedicated to this until much later on. So I was wondering why earlier period you didn't have something that's specifically for this. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm I'm not entirely sure um, about the why part of it. Um, like I say, people were doing tafsir. So when they were doing it, they obviously operated on the basis of certain usul. But to an extent, um, they did so uh, based on their their individual uh, skill as mufassirin. And therefore, you know, we have books which talk about the usul employed by al-Tabari, the usul of al-Qurtubi, uh, the usul of Ibn Kathir. So sometimes we talk about usul al-Tafsir in that kind of um, individualized uh, framework. Uh, which is very interesting because we, we, we actually we do we do kind of say this for the madhab. We might say the usul of the Hanafi madhab and the usul of the Maliki madhab. That's that happens, but then you know in in, in a subsequent period, uh, we then have something we call usul al fiqh, which is a kind of agreed upon framework. Uh, by which I mean, we have uh, any book of usul al fiqh has a certain identifiable chapters within it. We know what the topics of usul al-fiqh are. We know what the debates within usul al-fiqh are. And we know that what the various opinions, even when there are different opinions, uh, what those are. Um, in a way, we still have kind of two branches of usul al-fiqh, very broadly speaking, or two approaches. Famously, the, the Hanafi approach kind of sits on one side and then the other schools have, uh, have, have a different framework on certain issues. But usul al-fiqh is very well worked out and developed. Uh, we know exactly what it is. We know what to, what we're talking about. We know the nature of the debates and where people sit with their the, with their conclusions. Usul al-Hadith, as well as you mentioned, um, is much clearer in its development as to how uh, you know what 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 hadith studies are about and 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 how um, one goes about authenticating hadiths and not so much on the part where it comes to interpreting hadiths, but the interpreting part. Uh, falls again into Usul al-Fiqh because Usul al-Fiqh contains within it um, um, a focus on how the Quran is understood and interpreted and how the Hadiths are understood and interpreted but when Usul al-Fiqh looks at these things it looks at it from the perspective of Fiqh it looks at it from the perspective of how do we generate the ruling from the Quran and how do we generate the ruling from the Hadith um, and from the Quran and Hadith together, and what happens if we find uh, some conflict between different texts and things like this? But it will work out. It will work with the text from the perspective of the text being a dalil or an evidence for certain rulings. So it will give special focus to texts which have a kind of juristic um, flavor to them. So within the Quran, famously, there's something like 500 verses out of the 6,000 plus. 500 verses which are known as ayat al-ahkam or verses of rulings. Uh, that's a very inexact kind of measure, but um, 
you know the kind of verses we're talking about. So the one talking, the longest verse of the Quran is talking about debts, and there's other verses about inheritance, and there's verses about wudu, and there's verses about salah and zakah and so on, um, which are then the basis for uh, drawing conclusions. Usul al-fiqh worked out in a lot of detail about how to treat these texts, how to interpret these texts, um, but with the goal and aim of extracting their rulings. Uh, so usul al-fiqh is one of the areas which is very rich for usul al-tafsir. However, usul al-fiqh did not focus on what do we do with Quranic stories, what do we do with aqidah texts, what do we do with all different types of genre, how do we deal with metaphorical type of, you know, or amthal and parables within the Quran. Um, so yes, it's possible that we can use the usul al-fiqh framework on those texts as well, but there's no guarantee that this is actually the right methodology to deal with all types of texts within the Quran. That's an, an assumption which many might make, and the argument could be made for it. But what I'm saying is that the Usul al-Fiqh scholars uh, were concerned with the Quran as a source of rulings when they wrote what they wrote in the chapters of Usul al-Fiqh. So as for why, well, I think... Um, uh, it's it's a kind of preoccupation with with uh, with the practical aspect. So that's if you like, I'm putting a positive spin on it. They wanted to focus on what is most pressing and needed, which is to understand um, how the the laws of the Quran are to be enacted. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a great importance on uh, the belief aspect of the Quran and the ethical dimensions of the Quran as well. Um, so while there was uh, attention given to it, what was needed is, is, is greater attention and greater codification and, uh, and development of, of, of the methods that are needed to deal with all the different types of passages and verses that we have in the Quran. Final question while we're on this topic. For students who do want to pursue a specialization in tafsir, in terms of other subjects, Arabic, you had mentioned hadith, how much more would they have to learn for those subjects in order for them to kind of have a more uh, a well-rounded understanding and appreciate their the tafsir a bit more? Yeah, when you ask about appreciate tafsir a bit more, that's an easier question to answer than how do we train mufassirin, um, which was kind of the bigger thing I was trying to, uh, biting off more than I can chew, really, because I'll, I'll say something about that before I come directly to your question. If we look at some... Uh, um, like Imam Suyuti's Itqan, for example, um, although he took from other sources when he talked about this, he talked about the sciences that are necessary in order to, to be involved in tafsir and to do tafsir. So he gives a list of, of some 15 uh, sciences, uh, including four of them, which are about language, and then there are things like Qur'at, and then there's things like, he mentions fiqh in there, and usul al-fiqh. Um, essentially, it comes down to a view that you have to master the entirety of, of the Islamic corpus uh, before being qualified to, to engage in tafsir. And in a way, you can understand the rationale behind that. But at the same time, how can you master fiqh before mastering tafsir? Like you, have to, you have to actually know how to interpret the Qur'an in order for those other fields to exist because the Qur'an is the source of everything. Um, so 
uh, while that that list is uh, you know has a lot of value, there's 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 room for a bit of probing into it. But what it tells us is that tafsir uh, as a discipline, especially if we want to benefit from the books of tafsir, say we want to go and read um, some of the books of tafsir. First of all, we're, we're going to need Arabic because most of those books are in Arabic. Uh, as you may know, I'm I'm involved in translating some works of tafsir. In particular, I'm working on the tafsir of Ar-Razi. So we have already the Great Exegesis, Volume One, and and there's a Volume Two which is which is due out sometime next year, inshallah. Um, and it's an award-winning tafsir, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's an it's an award-winning translation. Award-winning, <laughs> well, uh, it's among the ummahat of tafsir, you know, in terms of the historical work, uh, it is. Uh, and, and then the translation itself is award-winning. Alhamdulillah. It's, it's received some recognition. But the point is that in order to, to do what I did, I had to draw on many different sciences. Um, so if I was not an Azhari graduate, I'm 100% sure that I would not have been able to do it because I wouldn't have had the exposure to different disciplines that I needed. Um, just to know when I'm looking at a certain passage, just to know what's going on here and and to know my own uh, gap and shortcoming and what I need to pay attention to. Uh, otherwise, I, I could find a word that looks very simple uh, and not realize, well, this belongs to a certain uh, field of, of, of Islamic thought. Uh, I could look at the word daur and think, oh, daur is, uh, well, you know, um, um, like the, the second floor of a building, you know, daur thani. Or I could think, well, maybe this is dur. Maybe it's a plural of, uh, of of dar or something like that. So the point is, uh, unless I've seen the word daur before, very deceptively, you know, three letters, unless I've, I've actually studied some ilm al-kalam and some falsafa, and I know that there's this concept of infinite regression, and they use the word daur for this, uh, I, I would just, I would not know what I'm doing, and I would just write down something uh, which is which is utterly wrong. Um, so, that's that's my experience as a translator of a text like that. Um, now, the reader of my translation, for example, um, wouldn't have to be uh, very particularly qualified on all these things because I'm doing my best to facilitate for that reader, um, and especially in the footnotes. But um, it's only really by having an exposure to those different fields that they would be able to appreciate the value of what Imam Razi is saying when he goes off into these various tangents. Of course, Imam Razi is particularly famous for his tangents. But uh, I would say that many of those things are very pertinent to, to tafsir. Uh, or, or, you know, people can, can debate about that. But the fundamental uh, issues in tafsir uh, revolve around the Arabic language. And I think that if a person doesn't have a good solid appreciation of the Arabic language, they would f- they would not really be able to appreciate what tafsir is doing most of the time. Uh, I, I'm not saying that to to to, dis- uh, to discourage anyone from buying my my books and my translations, you know, especially volume two when it comes out, it's going to be going through a range of surahs, so you can read the tafsir of Surah Yusuf, Al Kahf, and Naml, Yasin, Al Mulk. Um, and I've done my best to make it in, make sense in English, but ultimately, it's it, it's a funny kind of game here because tafsir is fundamentally an Arabic science. Uh, don't quote me on that. Don't put it on the cover of the book. But tafsir is fundamentally an Arabic science. Uh, 
Um, and then uh, we, we we have another level where we can present the meanings of the Quran in other languages. Um, and I'm and I'm very pro translation, and I'm 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 very much for translating the Quran and and translating tafsirs as well. But a lot of that tafsir is written really its logic is very arabic all right and now you know we kind of had a very seamless transition from your introduction to many of the questions that i had initially wanted to ask but there's on this subject matter of tafsir before we move on to the other stuff i just wanted a quick introduction of what exactly is tafsir uh who are its leaders what are some of their major works and which works are the most reliable okay so as i was uh, touching on before tafsir is clarification of the Quran, uh, and 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 when I when I say the following, this is really a conception that I that I reached uh, based on my own uh, research and reflection. I don't think it's controversial. It's just maybe slightly unusual to put it in this way. That tafsir is the answer to questions, or sometimes even answer to contentions that are raised. You know, we don't have the the word tafsir in the Quran except in one ayah. And when, and I'll, I'll give you the reference, it's Surah 25, verse, I want to give you the verse number as well. Um, but where it mentions that they do not come to you, O Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, with any uh, example, except that we give you the truth and the best explanation. إِلَّا جِئْنَاكَ بِالْحَقِّ وَأَحْسَنَ تَفْسِيرًا Yeah, it's... Surah 25, verse 33. So where the word tafsir appears in the Quran in one place, it means the answer to questions or rather contentions that the unbelievers in particular were bringing to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So we don't have to, you know, I'm just saying that that is the Quranic usage of the word tafsir. And I think it's appropriate for us to think of tafsir uh, when we look at it as a science, to look at it in that way. Uh, for the reasons I mentioned, that um, uh, our assumption should not be that everything in the Quran needs tafsir, right? This is a fundamental problem, um, which I often come back to, really. How can we say that, you know, Allah has spoken, and as we know, as Allah tells us, and we would believe, even without having to have a verse that says so explicitly, that who is better than Allah in speech? Okay, there's none better than Allah in speech. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed the Quran, has communicated with his creation, and he is the best to do so. So then how is it that we need tafsir in the first place? That's a, that's a fundamental uh, problem, and, and people go from there in different directions. Uh, one may say that um, the need for tafsir arises not because of an unclarity of the text, but because of an unclarity in our minds. Um, so uh, sometimes people talk about the Quran being locked, for example. And I, I say that because every few weeks I see another course called Unlocking the Quran. <laughs> uh, and I get very vexed by this because I say, I, I, even, I even sometimes email them and say, who locked the Quran? And can you point to me any ayah which says that the Quran is locked? The Quran says quite the opposite about itself. But when the Quran talks about locks, it talks about locks on the hearts. Do they not ponder on the Quran or are there locks upon hearts? Uh, so 
the obstacle comes from our own self rather than from the text. At the same time, on a theological level, you know, to, to understand that, um, you know, the, the difficulty involved in interpreting the Qur'an is part of the test of life. Uh, you could ask a, a broader question, why did God not make everyone believers? Why has he not guided every person? You know, is he is he not capable of guiding every person? Well, of course, but we have to somehow uh, come to peace with the fact that uh, not everybody is uh, is is going to be guided uh, in the same way. Not everybody is going to understand the Quran in the same way. Uh, part of the test uh, is is to struggle, is to put in the effort to do ijtihad uh, or to use the ra'i if I have to say it in that way, because people use that with uh, with tafsir, and that is where the experts have to take the lead um, to, to, to provide clarification of the guidance of the Qur'an. So that's, that's what tafsir is. And then if we look at um, works of tafsir, right? So uh, before going into specific names, let me just make a, a general point about what we find in works of tafsir. I divide the content of tafsir books into three uh, categories. Um, and, and at the moment, these are the names that I that I am using to describe them. I call them pretext, text, and post-text analysis. Right. So text analysis, which is in the middle, that is what I uh, was talking about before. That fundamentally, um, understanding the Quran is through its language. That's the starting point. So the text is is understood according to the meaning of words. Um, the structure of, of, of sentences. So we have the sciences of lexicology, lugha. Uh, we have the sciences of um, of, of nahu and arab, grammar, uh, syntax. Okay, which which all le- lead to understanding what the words of the Quran are doing, the words and the sentences and the structures. But then that uh, textual understanding has to be rooted in what I call the pretext, which is. Otherwise, what I've already described earlier on as the context or the two contexts of the Quran. So the structural context and the revelatory context. Why do I call it pretext? Because that exists even before the ayah is revealed. So there was some context uh, that existed. um, And then an ayah came in response to that situation. So that's why it's, it's prior to the text in a certain way. And that's why when we when we understand a verse in context, we are thinking, yeah, what was going on? Uh, which 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 a person, a listener, or a reader is supposed to understand even before they come uh, to this ayah. But you sometimes have to work. Yeah, well, you have to work the other way around. You know, so you read the ayah and then you think about the pretext that lies behind it. So that's 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 two things so far: pretext. And then text, and then post-text. Post-text is everything that flows from the the things that we have mentioned. So, based on the on the ayah itself, the words of the ayah located within their context. Once we have done that, then what follows from it, and what is extracted from it? So, what is the guidance? What is the the lesson? What is the moral? Uh, or what rulings can also be be drawn from it? And that's what I said. Usul al-fiqh is especially. Um, tailored for, you know, what are the things that you know that can be drawn from and extracted from the ayah that might not be immediately obvious, that might not be the meaning of the ayah, um, but 
but follow from it and are authentically something that we can say God meant for us to draw this conclusion from the ayah, even if it was not the direct statement of the ayah. So any book of tafsir would have, you know, these things going on within it. So it will explain the words of the ayah. It will give you some maybe narrations about context and, and sabab nuzul, you know, the, the reasons for revelation, things like this. And it would give you implications uh, and rulings that follow from it. Uh, but I think it's helpful to, 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 to split these things apart in our, in our minds so that we recognize, well, what is the core purpose of tafsir? And then what are the things that, that, that exist around it? In terms of the question about what are the major works of tafsir and most reliable works of tafsir, um, there is there is a wide range really in our our history. Um, I mentioned about the tafsir of uh, at Tabari. I mentioned about the tafsir of Al Zamakhshari. Uh, these are some of the important ones. At Tabari because it is one of those works that uh, that gave a lot of attention to uh, narrating and gathering the opinions of the early exegetes, uh, so the first generations or the Salaf, it gave a lot of attention to that. That doesn't mean that Tafsir of At-Tabari only contains narrations. That's a strange misconception that I've, that I've seen uh, in the modern times. Um, even one person who was, who was uh, delivering a course on Tafsir and apparently has got a PhD in Tafsir as well, um, he told his audience that, you know, that tafsir, uh, tafsir of At-Tabari is one of the most important ones because it only contains narrations. Well, that's not true. If you if you if you read through it, you would find it has got a great deal beside that. But it is a rich source of narrations, no doubt. Tafsir of Zamakhshari is is where uh, just about every subsequent tafsir has taken its lead in terms of the uh, linguistic and um, you know, even uh, rhetorical interpretation of the Quran, understanding how the Quranic language uh, does what it does and delivers the meanings, uh, the imagery in the Quran, all these things has been thoroughly treated by Zamakhshari. Of course, within it is also <coughs> many, many traces of his uh, heterodox uh, school, the, the Mu'tazili school. Uh, and for that reason, uh, Sunni exegetes, often when they were taking from him, they sifted out those things that they found unacceptable. Um, so the tafsir of Ar-Razi depends heavily on uh, Zamakhshari. Uh, many times when I'm translating Razi, I realize that in reality I'm translating Zamakhshari. So I think I deserve royalties. On, uh, if, if any Zamakhshari translation comes out, they should use my translation of Razi to help them, probably. But famously, the tafsir of Al-Baydawi uh, drew from, from uh, Zamakhshari first and foremost, and also from Razi, and also from Al-Raghib al-Asfahani. But the point is that what uh, these Ash'ari Sunni scholars did was they sunnified or, or sanitized, sunnitized, let's say, um, the work of Zamakhshari uh, so that it would not be Mu'tazili anymore. But what this points to is the fact that Zamakhshari was extremely influential and important. Uh, his work was was um, in its time in its time one of a kind and remained on the syllabus of of Islamic uh, seminaries for for all those uh, centuries subsequent. 
and you know I, I was looking recently at the syllabus of of the Ottoman uh, scholarship and and, I, and 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 noting there how prominent uh, Zamakhshari and Baydawi were in that syllabus and and various super commentaries or hashias on these works were studied by by students who want to be scholars um particularly in the field of of tafsir or as as the tafsir component of their study so um that's very important to understand and in a way to balance out the narrative that kind of just focuses on the narrative ones and says um at-tabari is important and then ibn kathir is important and then uh, Suyuti's Dur al-Manthur is important, and then Shaukani, and uh, and sort of skipping past um, those which which uh, which focused more on the linguistic aspect. Um, uh, so we need to have a balance, really, of of the different threads and strands within within uh, tafsir history. Uh, my, if I would tell you my go-to tafsirs that I'm kind of obsessed with. There's the Tafsir of Al-Alusi. Uh, Al-Alusi died in uh, 1853, if I remember correctly. Uh, so he was an Ottoman Baghdadi exegete. His Tafsir is, uh, as far as I can tell, the most detailed and thorough and rigorous study of the Tafsir tradition uh, that exists. It has not been matched uh, since then, you know, and uh, what he has done is he has synthesized just about every discussion and debate that happened in Tafsir, um, you know, prior to him. So Al-Alusi is a very, very important, but it's also very difficult. You know, it's a difficult one to, to make sense of. And then in the 20th century, uh, the most important work as far as I'm concerned is the Tafsir of Ibn Ashur. Ibn Ashur, uh, his work, Tahrir wa Tanweer, is very widely respected among scholars today. Um, among scholars of different schools, so you can find uh, among the sort of, uh, he was a Maliki scholar, uh, broadly uh, Ash'ari, as far as I can, as, as far as I'm aware. Um, but there you can find that, that people of different schools, including Salafi scholars uh, nowadays, have a great deal of respect for his work um, because it, it's very, very rigorous, uh, but in many places uh, very original. Um, so he's not just synthesizing the tradition, he's discussing the tradition, but he's also advancing many of his own uh, views, which are very enlightening indeed. Um, so... And, and that one is, is, is easier to read than Al-Alusi, but at the same time, a student of Tafsir, um, you know, would, a student who wants to read uh, Tahrir with Tanweer would need a fairly good familiarity with, uh, with you know, the, the existing Tafsir tradition. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a beginner text. It's not a beginner text because... Um, one would miss out if you if you jump straight to Tahrir where you would not necessarily understand the kind of allusions or references that he's making to earlier tafsirs and discussions. In terms of the interpretations that various mufassirun might have for a certain verse, uh, are these interpretations approximations, or are they something more certain and more binding? So when a, when a mufassir um, uh, explains something about the Quran. I think that we need to um, 
we need to take that on a case-by-case -case basis to decide whether that is something which is very authoritative or somewhat more speculative. Not all tafsir is on the same level. Uh, I, I talk about this in terms of um, epistemic values, right? So some po points of tafsir, once they are said, that that's, you know, it, it becomes uh, taken for granted and sometimes rightly taken for granted, right? If they're explaining the meaning of a word and they provide the evidence from um, Arabic poetry or, or early usage, uh, that becomes part of the corpus of tafsir and there's not much sense that that would be overturned later on. It's not impossible, but it would need a very strong case to overturn a point of language that has been well established since the earliest uh, uh, Mufassirin. But then there are other things which they mention in passing, and um, I find plenty of discussions like this in Ar-Razi where he says, um, he mentions some some people's views, and he says, well, my view is like this, and then he'll he'll talk about it, and then he'll say, and God knows best. Wallahu a'lam. Now, of course, wallahu a'lam can just be the humility of a scholar at any point. But a lot of times when he says wallahu a'lam, that's a kind of uh, signpost and a signal that this is a more speculative uh, point of view that he has put across. So the strength of it depends on the strength of his argument. And that's the general principle across the board. Um, it's not just the case that because Abu Fasr said it, it is definitely right. Um, what I would say is um, the Mufassirin are, are among our, the brightest minds of this Ummah and they were dedicating themselves to, to studying the Qur'an thoroughly. So the last thing we should do is to ignore what they said, to bypass what they said. Uh, if, if someone wants to bring a new interpretation of something, they should engage thoroughly with the tafsir tradition and, and then make their case for why they're interpretation is better and they have to show that also through the methodology that they use to reach their conclusion not just because that interpretation sounds better or is more palatable or more uh, fashionable or whatever it may be <coughs> but they have to understand uh, why the early Mufassirin uh, took a certain view um, as part of as part of making their case for our new point of view for various topics in law and theology, would you, and you kind of touched upon this, would you find a tafsir devoted purely to that topic? To, to what topic again? To any specific, like for law or for theology or something like right, that. Right. Um, to some extent you can. So for example, uh, certain books that focus on the legal uh, aspects of the Qur'an we we have um, a genre which is called Ahkam al-Qur'an. So famously, uh, Al-Jassas from a Hanafi perspective or uh, Ibn al-Arabi from a Maliki perspective or uh, Al-Kiyar al-Harrasi from the Shafi'i perspective. They have these um, works of Ahkam al-Qur'an. And then in modern times, we have some books which are called Tafsir Ayat al-Ahkam that look at the um, the uh, the legal verses in particular, um, and uh, maybe on some of the other examples you've given, there are uh, works that focus on particular aspects of the Quran or a particular method of, of analysis. Um, but now more and more we have something which is called thematic tafsir or tafsir al-mawdu'i, 
where people will even take a particular topic in the Quran. So they might say peace in the Quran or war in the Quran or uh, love in the Quran. And many, many books of this nature are, are being written. And what they will do is they will, they will select a particular theme. Uh, so even one particular topic within Aqidah they might, they might focus on rather than the broadness of saying Aqidah in the Quran. But um, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran of course would be a very, very vast topic in itself. But maybe a specific aspect of belief in Allah according to the Quran or angels in the Quran or something like this. So there are more and more books of this nature written um, which use a methodology which is broadly called thematic tafsir. So in terms of a bit more of the detailed stuff, you mentioned um, the Asbab al-Nuzul. Could you clarify this a little bit? Tell us more about it. So we have a, a genre of, of narrations uh, called the, the, the reasons, or often I translate it as the context of revelation, Asbab al-Nuzul. Um, and this is, this is because... The Quran, of course, was revealed over a period of time. It was revealed in, in, in pieces or fragments. Um, sometimes a single ayah would come or even a part of an ayah would come. Sometimes a surah would come as a whole. Uh, but that was, uh, you know, for a big surah like Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Ali Imran, oftentimes different parts would come at different times. And there would be something that occasioned a particular revelation. Uh, so, for example, a question that was asked or an incident that occurred and then you'd have the ayah coming down. So how do we know what that incident or occasion was? Sometimes you can you can almost read it into the ayah itself. You can understand the, what kind of situation occasioned this revelation. But then oftentimes you have narrations which are found in our, in our books of hadith and so on that are called asbab al-nuzul. Um, and those things um, vary in terms of authenticity, of course. Uh, they vary also in terms of their um, how authoritative they are in explaining that this is why the ayah was revealed. Um, so there has to be some sensitivity in how we read and understand uh, those texts. Uh, sometimes we find a particular ayah, there's more than one narration about why it was revealed or, or the context in which it was revealed. And then the scholars have to work out you know, how to prefer one narration over the other or how to reconcile them or to suppose that maybe the ayah came more than once. Uh, sometimes these uh, narrations uh, will say something like, this ayah was revealed in, with regards to this. But what, they, uh, what the, the companion actually meant was, this ayah is relevant to that situation. And not necessarily that... Uh, it was when this incident happened that the ayah was revealed. So, you know, نَزَلَتْ فِي كَذَا وَكَذَا So, there's, a, uh, you know, one might understand that literally as something happened and then the ayah came directly because of that or at that time. But it might otherwise be a much looser kind of usage as, as many scholars have pointed out. Um so, so that that's that, that's kind of the situation with asbab al-nuzul. Any such narration has to be assessed with regards to to three things: uh, its authenticity. So, obviously, if it's if it's very weak narration, then it would not be taken. But maybe some some weaker narrations can be taken if that's all that we have. Um, also, its uh, it, its its relevance. Uh, 
its relevance to the ayah because sometimes it's telling us about something that happened in the time of the Prophet but is it really directly related to this ayah necessarily? Uh, and thirdly, uh, in, terms of, in terms of its impact, because sometimes the sabab nuzul would strongly affect how we understand what the ayah is actually about and what it's saying. In other cases, it might just be some some background or some context that is good to mention, but doesn't really affect how the ayah would be understood if we didn't have that sabab nuzul. Right? So its impact is sometimes uh, not very strong. Are there any verses whose interpretation is limited only to the particular circumstance of its revelation? Um, for, for the most part, we would we would not um, posit that an, an ayah of the Quran is 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 limited to just to its its um, its initial circumstance of revelation. Uh, yes, there are some things which are, you know, for example, specific to the Prophet ﷺ, but that's also in the wording of the ayah, not because of sabab nuzul. Like if we know that it's an instruction or a permission to the Prophet ﷺ or to his wives, or but at the same time, the the general uh, the general approach with asbab nuzul is that if something is very particular to a, to the, its its context of revelation, it still would apply to anything which very closely resembles that context. But understanding the context helps us to specify what you know what what it is applicable to, right? So um, that's why they have this very general axiom or this very general rule where they say uh, So what matters is the broadness or the universality of the wording, not the specificity of the uh, the occasion of revelation. Uh, that, that's a general principle because it tells us that um, just because it was revealed in a very specific situation doesn't mean automatically that we rule out all other ap applicability of the verse, but it may affect uh, what we see as relevant, you know, what we see that the verse can apply to because, um, because it, you know, so take, for example, some, some kind of uh, verses that were to do with warfare and so on. And they were referring to um, tackling very specific uh, groups of people and dealing with uh, certain specific threats. Well, it's sometimes important, you know, in, in understanding the Quran contextually to say, well, this verse isn't saying kill everyone, you know, kill all the unbelievers, etc., etc. Right? It's very important to say, well, this came in a particular context and which unbelievers are being spoken of what was the specific threat that was being faced that is being responded to by these ayahs uh, but then the, the verses may still have a type of applicability if there's a, a situation which is directly related to the type of situation being described in the ayah so it doesn't mean that now the ayah is like irrelevant it just means that it shouldn't be just taken as universal and applied willy-nilly because you know that would that would result in in a serious misunderstanding of uh, the Quranic guidance. Okay, and what is abrogation? Abrogation, uh, which is called nasq in Arabic, is for one uh, ruling to replace another. Uh, so, for the most part, abrogation operates as uh, within the Quran, or abrogation occurs. Uh, by the Quran to the to the Sunnah, or for, by the Sunnah to the Quran, 
Um, an abrogation may be um, pertinent to, to the words and it may be pertinent to, to the ruling only. So there are various categories that are discussed in the books about abrogation. Uh, and and there there you know the, the issue that I looked at more in my thesis was uh, are there abrogated verses in the Quran? So are there things that are in the Quran that have been in a sense cancelled out or replaced by another ruling? Uh, if so, what what kind of thing would would cancel out a verse of the Quran? Well, first and foremost, we would assume that if anything has the privilege to cancel something in the Quran, it's another verse of the Quran. Um, so there are various uh, uh, claims made of verses in the Quran which abrogate other verses or replace them in terms of the ruling which is operational and the ruling which is active. So then an abrogated verse is one which remains in the Quran if it's tilawa, uh, if its recitation is not abrogated. Um, so we have the verse which we still read in the, in, in the, in the pages of the Quran. We recite it. But we know that the ruling is not the final ruling. It was something that was replaced later on. Um, so, you know, although it's not really the clearest example, but at the same time, it's a very popular example. If we look at the situation of, um, of alcohol or wine and its prohibition, there were some statements made about, about wine which, which fell very short of, of making it prohibited in the beginning until step by step, rulings came which which resulted in the ruling uh, the final ruling of the Quran which is that uh, the wine is an abomination wine and gambling are completely prohibited so then when we if, if you were to ignore the verse which makes it absolutely prohibited and you read those other verses which we understand to be earlier verses you might make a conclusion well that uh, the alcohol is just mm, a bit bad or there's some problem with it, but it's not outright prohibited. So we have to understand that that implication of the early ayahs has been abrogated. Even if we don't say that the verse is abrogated, we have to say the implication that alcohol is still uh, acceptable but frowned upon has been replaced by the final statement that alcohol is completely prohibited. You know, the, the consumption of wine and intoxicants is completely prohibited. So that's just an illustration of of what happens with abrogation. And then we may still recite those ayahs. When we recite those earlier ayahs, uh, it's not just a case of, well, we still get the barakah, the blessing of reciting them, though that is true, but also that we can appreciate and understand the way that legislation came in a, in a stepwise way. And we may find other types of guidance in those earlier ayahs uh, beyond the specific ruling that was abrogated. It's not the verse in reality that's abrogated, but it is the ruling within the verse or a specific ruling within the verse that is abrogated by subsequent rulings. Understood. And with that, I'd like to conclude this episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarid, for giving me your time and for this very, very insightful discussion. I urge listeners to engage with Dr. Sarid's work, to purchase his translation, and to follow him on Twitter at Tafsir Doctor.